I got something in the mail today from Woodcraft. Coming up on September the 8th is uh, Blade Selection Saturday and free demos and stuff. That sounds like it could either be really cool or really a, a dangerous event. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, healthcare systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have fun along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Reed Smith and Chris Boyer. And welcome to episode 82 of Touchpoint. I am Reed Smith, joined always by Chris Boyer. How's it going? Pretty good, Reed. Pretty good for 82. 82, yeah. So we're, we're getting into a topic uh, this time around, I think, that is maybe our first time. But anyway, we're going to actually discuss, maybe we should have let out with this one in episode one. I'm not entirely sure. But is hospital marketing actually legal? <laughs> probably has a determinant on whether we should do any more episodes or not. Maybe episode 83 could be about is hospital marketing podcasting legal? Yeah, or maybe it's on like job search or something. Career placement. <laughs> oh, man. No, we'll, we'll, we will definitely keep going because uh, of all the loyal listeners. Thank you so much. Please, please, please. We have found and continue to hear that uh, people subscribing to our shows is the actual number one determining factor of if other people can find our shows. So super, super helpful if you will subscribe wherever you get your podcast, rate, review, uh, surf over to touchpoint.health if you'd like to check out the other shows on the network. Absolutely, absolutely. We also want to do a special shout out. We couldn't have gotten here, Reed, without all of our sponsors that have helped us along the way. And I thought that maybe we could start off the show with a little uh, shout out, tip of the hat, to one of our most loyal sponsors, that is Loyal. You know, today's healthcare consumers want to know what other patients have to say, and they definitely pay attention to all of those little stars that are beside a physician's name. That's right. And so for healthcare systems, embracing doctor reviews and star ratings is a win-win if and only if, if you do it the right way. If you do it legally, even, uh, you might say. <laughs> That's right. So Loyal's AI platform provides health systems with the tools they need to amplify patient feedback and guide patients throughout their digital journey. They've got a multi-disciplined team of engineers, marketers, data scientists, all of which you know, allow Loyal to partner with some of the nation's leading health systems to promote patient feedback online. For more information and to schedule a demo, please go out and visit them at loyalhealth.com. Be sure to tell them that uh, the Touchpoint podcast sent them your way. That is loyalhealth.com. Let's jump in and talk about this. This is something that's kind of interesting. We've got a really interesting interview coming up later with David Harlow. He is a lawyer in this space and works with hospitals and healthcare organizations all the time. Chris and I have known him for years. We thought, well, you know what, let's let's circle back and look at, you know, some of these key legal concepts that hospital marketing folks have to deal with. And there's three main ones, but the first one we've talked a lot about. Uh, the aforementioned show from last week, for example, and, and numerous other times throughout the previous 80 some odd episodes. But that's privacy, you know, and HIPAA and kind of maintaining or de-identifying patient data online. 
making sure that patient data is protected, making sure that any kind of uh, exposure of patient data is minimized, if not completely eliminated, and in overall, making sure that the encounter is anonymous as best as possible. You're right. We talked about HIPAA. We talked about some of the limitations of HIPAA last week. But you know, in this particular case, I think anonymity is an important part of uh, how we legally have to protect ourselves, particularly when we get into marketing. You know, we have to sign patient release forms. We have to make sure that whatever we do, we're not like accidentally posting a photo of a patient on social media, that sort of thing. Absolutely. And and again, we've talked a lot about that Mm -hmm. and and I'm sure will in, in episodes to come. I think the next two, though, are things that we have not touched on, at least not overtly touched on them. The next one in the list is the idea of you know what kind of promises are you making uh, or statements are you making in your marketing collateral website, you know, whatever it may be, what are you saying about your brand? That we're the most comprehensive world-class care that's close to home, right, Reed? <laughs> Top quality doctors, <laughs> um, you know, that kind of thing. But no, I mean, I think, you know, we, we've always heard this idea and I, and I remember once upon a time, you know, doing some hospital marketing from inside of a hospital you know, anytime you get ready to put a campaign out, you know, legal compliance, different folks would kind of participate in that process and look at the claims that you're making. And so this idea of not overpromising, I, I think, is a big one. And I think in our minds, we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, 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 we, we, we don't do that. We don't do that. But we did. We found an article. It's called Why Your Healthcare Marketing Needs a Checkup. And it's from Med, it's on MedCity News from just, a I don't know, a couple of months ago. Uh, and it talks a lot about this. You know, they've got some different things in this article that I think, you know, I, I don't know. It's an interesting kind of checklist as you as you go through this idea of not overpromising, so to speak. It was clearly written by a lawyer or someone that has legal background tendencies, legal tendencies, maybe, because it's very much being critical about how some of the ways that we have marketed in the past. They say, first of all, that as we market and marketing is evolving, we're starting to adopt, and maybe this isn't new, this has been around for a number of years, Reed, but starting to adopt sort of these hyperbolic taglines. <laughs> Things like I joked about earlier, right? Like remarkable care or world-class care or the top qualified doctors and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself could potentially lead to risk if you don't, um, if you don't have proof points to substantiate that, right? Or it could even backfire on you, which, you know, a hospital I worked with one time's tagline was, we treat you like family. And that may not be good for everybody. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know how your family treated you. So I'm not sure that exactly has the, uh, the be- I, I get where they're coming from. Were they the Olive Garden? Is that what their tagline is? Tagline, I think, was hear your family or something like that. Oh, maybe, okay, maybe that joke fell flat. But anyway, <laughs> the the need to kind of differentiate ourselves and uh, above all the din of other hospital marketing that's out there, I think it's led to this. It's led to the fact that we really want to try to 
find words that kind of encapsulate and grab the attention of people that are maybe seeing it on an ad or on a, you know, on the website or whatever it is, right? And so this article's got some good information in there, uh, one of which is in by all means, and they even say that it's it's not an exhaustive list of guidelines to consider, but they've got some guidelines in here to consider when you're when you're thinking through some of these things. And so, you know, the first point that they, they talk about is try to avoid superlatives and absolutes. Instead, you want to try to use facts, uh, actual documentation to convey why you're the best uh, without actually saying we're the best. And so I think that's that's a great, great way to think of that, about that. You know, they, they you know, talk about but don't turn aspirational statements into slogans. And that's what we like to do. Right. Because, again, this is a mission driven field and this is how people feel called to this area. In this timeline that we're releasing the, uh, the podcast, uh, this is the U.S. News just got released, and there's a lot of like uh, superlatives that maybe are being used right now <laughs> yeah. Yeah. in relationship to yeah. that. The second bullet point is uh, subjective, general, or opinionated statements are less likely to be actionable than objective or specific statements. So really avoid language that's unclear and, and really focus on language that's actually more specific and objective. Context matters. Uh, consider the audience. How, how's the message being delivered? Uh, what else is in the piece? You know, where's the piece going to be placed, used, posted? You know, what's the shelf life of it? Things like that. How about avoiding guarantees, implying sort of a higher standard of care? So avoid words that have or suggest maybe that special meaning like partner or we're proven or we're comprehensive or, you know, we have a duty to care. I remember a hospital um, uh, a couple of years ago, it was very well known. They actually said avoid death or something along those lines. They were trying to make a promise that, you know, by interacting with their hospital, that you would extend your life longer. Don't do that. That's a bad thing. Yeah, that's that's dangerous. You know, if, if you do uh, find yourself uh, creating testimonials, which which are great, and I'm not saying you should not. I think they have a lot of power. Uh, it's a great way to convey a message. Don't allow those testimonials to start creeping beyond the bounds of, you know, kind of what the typical patient experience is. To, so to your point, you know, we, we do like to go grab the person that's the anomaly. It's like, oh, she was on, on her deathbed, you know, and we, we saved her life. You know, and then, of course, from the influencer marketing side of the equation, if you've got mommy bloggers in your market or, you know, those types of things, uh, anybody that you're p- truly partnering with, make sure that they understand that they need to disclose that as well. I think that's really important that you disclose sort of that relationship they have with you. The other thing is, uh, it's not just the the patients or these influencers. It could be your own staff or even your doctors. You want to educate them on things that they need to say, things that they need to state, making sure, you know, that they are also not being hyperbolic or engaging in puffery about their services or themselves. That becomes a very high risk for your organization. Don't skip over the, you know, part about, uh, you know, just because, you know, well, we didn't say that. Well, that may be the problem, right? So make sure that you're including enough and you're not omitting any facts, you know, that, that really need to be in there. Okay, and here's another one that I see often is like only make claims that are supported by competent and reliable scientific evidence. And I remember this here is that way back when, and I'm not picking on these guys in particular, but way back when, when the Da Vinci robot was uh, released, a lot of organizations, this is like maybe 10 years ago, started to just publish Da Vinci content. 
content about the da Vinci robot and robotic surgery, including results from that right on their website. And uh, a, a legal team did a review and they found that there was like maybe a hundred websites that not only contained identical content, but they were publishing things that was not substantiated by any kind of reliable scientific proof. That just became really messy. And we see or, or people want to do that. Yeah, they want to be first to market, right? And they want to be cutting edge. And, and so it's easy to find yourself in that trap when a new piece of technology comes by. So uh, also avoid suggesting responsibility for third parties, independent contractors, you know, et cetera. Don't talk about care beyond what you're actually providing. You know, and I think we could get in a little bit of trouble when you start talking about like ACOs. And I mean, again, the legal definition, there's a little bit different, but this idea that there's a continuum of care. Well, make sure that you actually have responsibility for that continuum of care and don't don't start, you know, suggesting or taking responsibility for for those outside your walls. Last but not least in this list of what is seemingly, it's starting to sound a little bit like a very uh, negative list, but um, important guidelines. Make sure you're considering disclaimers, disclosures, or any kind of explanations where they're appropriate because it's important to identify where you're getting your proof points or where you're getting your data from that you're using in your marketing. And, and then to add on to that, make sure to understand too that disclaimers are not panaceas. And so sometimes you can actually get you know, you can, you can have some negative repercussions if you're citing something that ends up being, you know, maybe not that reliable. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think, so here, here's the rub with this, right, is how do you still market hope, you know, and still, you know, some sense of comfort when this sounds very cold at the end of the day, right? Like stick to the facts, don't do testimonials, you know, whatever, right? Like it feels like it's a, it's yeah, a, it's a lot exactly. of like, uh, steer it back over here, stay, you know, stay over here, stay over here. And I think this is where, you know, highlighting employees, talking about what you're good at, people's passions, things like that, in humanizing the brand to some degree will help soften some of those edges. And I think really there's a lot of common sense that comes into play here. St- stick with what you know, just don't, don't over promise. I mean, it's, it's, I know that sounds simplistic, but so now we're left with not world class care close to home, but maybe we have a pretty good clinic that's right in the yeah. neighborhood. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's within ten miles of you. Yeah, regional care close to home, <laughs> or <laughs> common care also right here. You know, um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Well, maybe these aren't inspiring statements. One of the things, though, working in, you know, in periphery work that I've done with branding and branding experts, it's one of the things that you really want to bring forward is anytime you are engaging in some kind of branding or marketing work, make sure that whatever you're saying is authentic, it can be proven, and it's actually unique to your organization. And I think you're going to win out every time. So you don't have to get down to the lowest common denominator, but, you know, avoid reaching too far above the stars and just stay really close to what you actually do, right? And that's really a great way to kind of avoid any kind of legal risk with your hospital marketing. Hey, we want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors, and that's our good friends at Binary Fountain. You know, as a healthcare marketer, it's probably pretty obvious these days how much time you're spending uh, on reviews, ratings relative to hospitals, physicians, all that kind of good stuff. You know, too many of those are going unanswered, and they're certainly not being analyzed. 
This could be costing us new and current customers. It could be impacting our patient experience scores and potentially impacting our revenue. Luckily, our good friends at Binary Fountain have an online reputation management platform called Binary Health Analytics. If you'd like to learn more or even schedule a demo, visit them online at binaryfountain.com. That's binaryfountain.com. All right, so we've talked about privacy uh, a little bit in this episode, a lot in other episodes. Uh, we've talked, you know, uh, secondly about the idea of of overpromising, uh, and, and finally, I think that key, that third legal concept uh, that hospital marketing folks need to be, you know, aware of it, is to avoid any Stark issues. And so, Stark's a big deal, or anti kickback, or kind of however you want to talk about that. And so, we found found an article uh, that talks about some of the 2018 updates. The reason the article was written and the reason these articles are written every year is because uh, the non-monetary compensation for what you can give physicians, uh, it goes up a little bit every year, every couple of years or something like that. So in 2017, you could annually provide value or benefit to a physician, non-monetary, of $398. And for uh, 2018, that went up $9 to now $407 in the calendar year. Oh, boy. This is a nightmare because your medical staff office or somebody like that has to keep track of this, of you know how much have we given a physician at any given point throughout the year, because there is a limit of $34 per occurrence. Maybe we want to take a step back here, the Stark Law, because some people may not be familiar with that, but right, that's a law that really prohibits physician self-referral and specifically how hospitals can compensate doctors that are not under their employment, right? That are maybe free agent doctors or doctors that have some kind of affiliation with your hospital. And that's a law that was, when was that created? That was created like back in 1988. Yeah, it's been a while and it's been updated a little bit because of uh, some of the HIT standards and some things like that, which we'll kind of get into. But it was this idea very simply from a hospital marketing standpoint, it was basically an anti-kickback statute where in very simple terms, they did not want you to market physicians you knew would refer patients back to you. And so basically, it's like, you know, you're going to hold this guy out and try to drive all the patients to him because you know you're, he's going to send all his patients to you. And that's illegal. And so that's what they're, they're trying to avoid, which is, is good. And you'll, you'll hear in the upcoming interview with David Harlow on why that maybe doesn't work now and needs to be updated. Interesting. Anyway, it has to do with uh, kind of the move from uh, fee-for-service to value-based purchasing and some of those types of things. So anyway, I'll leave that there. But so this idea was, is like, okay, you can give physicians benefits throughout the year, uh, non-monetary benefits, but you've got to keep track of it. You can only do so much. Okay. And so this was, you know, when you, when you bought all the people on the medical staff a ham or a turkey for Thanksgiving... Uh, you had to go in there and write down, you know, okay, $18 next to everyone's name and make sure that that didn't equal more, you know, if they got tickets to the baseball game, you know, the, the hospital has season tickets to the local, you know, double A baseball team or something, you know, and you gave somebody tickets to a game, you had to give face value is $40, you know, you had to track all this stuff, right? And so that goes up a little bit each year, I, I guess, with just cost of living increases and, and that kind of thing. And so when we look at this and we look at Stark and how we market physicians, 
What are some of those common things that typically come up? So you know, we want to do something and, and legal or compliance says what? Well, we have to do it for the entire medical staff, right? You can't just cherry pick. These are for physicians that are not employed by you. Now, I, I live in a state where we actually employ some specialists. Those are exempt, right? But these are physicians that are maybe in the community or have some sort of affiliation with you. You need to make an even playing field, right? And I see this a lot when we're talking about, let's say, how doctors are displayed on a website in a physician search. That's a big one that I see all the time. Whether it's returning you know, physicians through a search tool on the website or they call a number oh, we're going to do physician bio videos or whatever it is, right? There has to be a reason for the way that you did it that then fits into this. So you can't, it's like, well, hey, how come he got a video? You can't be like, well, um, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there has, it's like, well, we started with OB gins. And so we did all the OB gins. Oh, oh Okay. That's a defensible position. Or we started with people that had official titles within the organization. So, so medical directors, for example. Uh, so it's, again, still here in Texas, we don't employ doctors, but we do have you know medical directors that are paid to perform that particular function or role within the organization. That's a little different, right? So you could do those. And so anyway, to have a defensible position. So I remember when I was in New York, I worked for a hospital. One of the things that we were doing is um, we wanted to optimize the physician bios, like their personal bios on, on each one of their profiles on their website. But we were talking about 6,000 physicians, right? <laughs> we thought, okay, what's the best way that we can go about doing this? And so one of the first things we did is we offered the services to all of the physicians and we sent it out via letter to all the doctors and said, you know, here's the, this opportunity to do this. And what you need to do is come to this website and fill out a form that asks for our help with us optimizing your profile. Now, notice how we built that structure, right? We sent that out to all 6,000 physicians, knowing that, you know, only a small subset of them will probably actually open up their, their letters. And then only a smaller subset of those people would actually then take the action to you know, go online to actually fill out the form to request that, that access. So we set a little bit of friction in there because we realized we couldn't do that all for all 6,000 right. all at once. What that allowed us to do, though, is like maybe uh, it was something like 200 or three of the, 300 of them responded initially, and we went out and built their profiles. And then the next round, uh, the next quarter, we did it again, the same thing to all of those that already started. And eventually what we were able to do is take away a, a number of them, a majority of them. Not all of them yep. responded, but a majority of them did respond. And just setting up a process that was kind of consistent. No, I think it's great because I think then if you have the physician that comes back and says, hey, you know, no, nobody asked me. You can say, uh, actually, we did. Here's the letter that was sent. Here's the process. You know, it's, it's all very defensible and logical, right, for how it, how it happened. That's one of the kind of the key guidelines is that the compensation, you know, again, non-monetary. So the value they're getting, let's say, is not determined in any manner that takes into account the volume, volume of referrals, other business, et cetera. But yet, you know, it's actually offered maybe to everybody in a particular specialty or the entire medical staff or, you know, again, you know, this is how we're doing it. It's very systematic. We're not just randomly choosing folks that it's, that's a harder, even if you were randomly choosing people, that's going to be a hard defensible position. 
It still sounds like a nightmare to manage, though. It is a nightmare to manage. I would think that's somewhat the reality, I guess. Now, I think what's interesting is is there's this, you know, this comment in here in this article and they go through, you know, kind of the different benefits and categories and stuff like that. One of them says, except with respect to identification on the medical uh, identification of medical staff on a hospital website or hospital advertising, the compensation is provided only during periods when the medical staff members are making rounds or engaged in other services activities that benefit the hospital or its patients. That's another key piece of this, which is when you're advertising or promoting physicians that do not work, again, non-employed, the advertisement or whatever's happening, whatever you're doing, the video, uh, the website thing, you know, whatever it is, it has to benefit the, the hospital, not the physician or the physician practice. That's where you get really, um, that's problematic. And we've even done this some in Texas, again, don't employ anybody, where we're actually having to take blank white lab coats to video interviews because their their practice name is always embroidered on them. And so you're having to swap out, you know, lab coats and that, that kind of thing. So you're not having to try to like fix it in post-production, which is everybody's go-to. I guess the question is, and this is where some of the technology is outpacing the law in my interpretation. When we talk about identification of the medical staff on a hospital website, well, what does that mean? Typically, it was like, well, that's a that's a directory. And then the search functionality of that got a little more sophisticated. Um, and, and then, oh, oh, and now we can we can request appointments, you know, and, and you're requesting appointment with the doctor, not the hospital. How does that value translate? I don't know. It's interesting to me. I, I can't reconcile some of this in my mind. It gets it gets a little cumbersome. Well, some of the things that we've done when we look at like um, a, a platform for like online appointment schedule, or even just you know the ability to to determine the best way to create those online appointments is we look at it differently. We really look at it as based on what the user searches by. What we do is we say, let's say for example, they type in. Um, we want to search for a doctor in this zip code or this city. Then what we do is we take like sort of like the closest location to that city, right? So we put in that process to say, well, regardless of that doctor, whichever one is closest to the city is the best, you know, suited answer for you. Again, not showing preference. It's by what the user generated, right? Or what the user requested. You know, geography is maybe one of the easier ones to combat, you know, especially as we get more sophisticated with technology, maybe it, maybe it makes some of that easier, right? Because we know where they're coming from. We know what they're searching for, you know, those types of things. I think having a, a thing in place that uh, our process in place where returning, how are we returning the search results in a start compliant manner? Right. And that's the hard part, right? Is how do we start fil- adding in all the filters and all the things that the the patients want, right? Maybe they want to say they accept this type of insurance or they have first available appointments. I mean, that's another thing that could be user generated that can drive how the results come by, right? But now you're getting really sophisticated. Now, that's not to say that that's not the right thing to do. You want to go down that route. These are the the right questions to be asking, but you want to be careful that you're doing this within the compliance of Stark. And, you know, ensuring that you're not providing extra non-monetary benefit 
to those non-employed physicians when you're doing Yeah, so this will be an interesting one to watch. I, I think, and again, be sure to stick around for the interview with, with David here in a little bit, because I think you know we get into a couple of things specific to Stark that I think are really going to drive some sort of an update rewrite. I, I don't know, you know, really, you know, how do you address some of this stuff, but in any case, the ecosystem of healthcare, which, which may or may not have anything to do with technology, I think is going to dictate that it, that it has to be readdressed. Well, I think rewriting is important because uh, when you look at one of these uh, benefits, they indicate that compensation could be in- including, but not limited to internet access, pagers, or two-way radios. <laughs> Yeah, because again, it has to be about things that benefit the hospital, right? And so some of this did get updated uh, with with some of the advent of HIT, right? So doctors being able to access uh, medical records from their physician practice offices. So, you know, there was money that could be spent by the hospital to make sure that the doctors had the technology in their office to reach the medical records in the hospital. And so they were able to pay for some of those types of things, but everything's been like this on campus requirement. So you can pay for internet access, I guess, in the doctor's lounge, I guess is what that means. You can provide the physicians with pagers (laughs) or two way radios, which that's awesome. Uh, I want like the I want that I want the like that like the guy from the NASCAR thing with like the headset with the antenna on the side, you know. Like I want that two way radio. <laughs> that would be amazing. Would that be considered telemedicine if they mm. uh, had that? I think so. I think so. Which actually, you know, leads me to think. Well, how how would we do virtual health? Is that considered by you know offering to non employed physicians the ability to participate in a telemedicine program, and then we promote the telemedicine program and maybe include the doctor on that? I think historically too, when they looked at the hospital website, that was considered on campus, like that was a hospital thing. I just think we're getting with AI and some of these things to a place where it's not going to be quite as clean where the hospital website stops and the physician starts, so to speak. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think we're going to have to kind of relook. Uh, they are going to have to relook at all this. And, and I think that's being discussed. So I guess we'll see where it goes. So if a hospital's Twitter account retweets a doctor's tweet, is that considered a monetary benefit? I think it is, but I don't know how you value the tweet. I think that's been the tripping point. It's like, well, what's that worth? Well, it depends on how many followers you have, theoretically. If that was the case, which I don't necessarily agree with, a hospital with like 500 followers could retweet everybody in the world, I guess, but the Mayo Clinic can't retweet anybody because they got a lot more followers. You, you know what I mean? So it's like this weird sliding scale if that's how we're going to value or determine the value, I guess, of someone's Twitter account. We're getting back to asking these really weird questions like, you know, what's what's a Twitter account worth? You go talk to a CFO and they're going to tell you that that marketing is a cost center. So maybe, maybe that Twitter account is actually costing us money. Therefore, the physician owes us money. It goes against that 407. <laughs> it just goes down, you know. So if you want to, you know, it's like, oh, we're bumping up against his annual limit. It's like, oh, well, hang on a second. Let me retweet him a few times and then we can give him those tickets. 
I love it. I love the rationale. But Reed, I mean, that begs the question then, what we initially posed in our kind of admittedly link-baity title of this podcast, is hospital marketing legal? I hope so. It depends on how you do it, I guess. Hey, Chris, before we go too much further, jump into this next segment of the podcast, I did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors, Influence Health. Uh, you know, they've got a consumer experience platform that, that covers several things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've we've talked about content management systems on this podcast. Yeah, we did. What about CRMs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? That's right. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. Well, there you go. I, you know, I would, I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else, they've also got some complimentary solutions on their website, but, but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems, kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to influencehealth.com. point. Touch counterpoint. There are two sides to every story. Ready? Fight! Okay, Reed, I thought of a great argument we can we can get into here uh, related to this whole topic about the legality of how we do hospital marketing. Earlier, we were talking about sort of those superlative words that we use, like world-class care or the best or comprehensive and all of those those sorts of things you know in my mind i actually think that those are words that you can actually substantiate you can actually prove those things i would argue i'm going on record right here right now saying that those words are legal and can be proved and we should start using them we we who i guess would be the question there so world-class care we have to then determine what comprises world-class care. It becomes a superlative because that, that's a moving target. So if you say world-class care is the top X percent of care given, let's say, or something like that, who's going to keep up with that, number one? And secondly, I don't know how you determine that because it's a moving target. Well, first of all, CMS keeps track of um, you know all the care that's being delivered here in the United States, and they provide that on their report, hospitalcompare.gov. Uh, U.S. News and others actually do a very good job kind of aggregating that across the United States. So in the very least, we can quantify what um, American-class care is. Now, it's just a, a, a minor stretch to reach out to the rest of the world, right? We can look at the way uh, care is being measured across Asia, across Europe, across the the major continents. And I bet you we can aggregate that and start to define that in the top, let's say, 25th percentile. uh, If your care falls into that, you're you're delivering world-class care. Yeah, but I know like 400 top 100 hospitals. This is where all this is leading. So all of a sudden, okay, well, we've defined that top, you know, top care, whatever the geographic determinant is, falls into this box. Well, what happens when like most everyone's in that box? Then we, we've got to move the box up again. And then you end up, it's this herky-jerky like, you know, 
We're world-class care. Oh, wait, no, we're not. Now, okay, now we're world-class care again. And so, you know, your care didn't really change. It's just the ecosystem did. Well, yeah. I mean, but that's natural, right? I mean, you know, you could be the top seller in your category in any industry for the for one year and then maybe be number two, number three, or even lower the next year. That doesn't matter. You, you just got to put your dates around it. World-class care in 2016. You know, they do it for restaurants. They get Zagat ratings in restaurants. We could do it for hospitals. Come on. Yeah, but I'm only going to go to the hospital on those good years. Uh, that, that's the problem is it's like, ah, oh, shoot, I wish I would have gotten ill sooner because my local hospital used to be world class. And apparently this year they're not. So now I've got to drive somewhere else. Well, no, I mean, it's, a, it's the same thing that it was last year. Okay, but maybe world class is a number is a is a term that it's going to be hard for us to quantify. Why don't we turn to term like you know comprehensive? I think we could we could pretty clearly establish what comprehensive means. There's a definition in the dictionary. We can look that up, and what we could do is we could create characteristics of what it means to comprise of a a comprehensive health system. And if we check all those boxes, I think we could start saying that we're comprehensive. I don't think we can say we're comprehensive. Isn't everybody comprehensive? I haven't met anybody that's not comprehensive yet. Who's not? Is is this a comprehensive medical center? No, not quite. We're not quite comprehensive. We're like half comprehensive. We're like semi-hensive. <laughs> Again, we haven't gone around and really standardized the way we define comprehensive. But if we did, we could check the box, right? Comprehensive would mean that you have a good tertiary care system. You accept the majority of insurances in your market. You, you know, I think we could create a laundry list of those and start to check the, check the boxes and say you are comprehensive or not. I mean, this is certainly doable. I'm not saying that it's currently in practice, but it's certainly something we can do. How about top qualified doctors? I think we could establish that, right? Because every magazine in every city or town they come out with their top doctors of the year we could certainly say that we have some of the top doctors if they make that list right i I don't know these are just all super moving targets to me and i guess to what end because anybody can say it and everybody's just gonna go oh okay that's cool like nobody goes back and checks Who, who reads hospital compare nobody do they well i think maybe hospitals do (laughs) the government maybe i don't know (laughs) okay okay look read i really tried i really tried there's no way i can argue this (laughs) it's so hard to argue it it's like trying to define you know what truth is and apparently in this day and age truth doesn't necessarily mean truth i guess but i guess what we're saying is these terms if we're vague enough it's going to be really hard to quantify them but you know, I gave it my 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 you know best effort. Yeah, you did. You might say I gave a world class effort. It was, it was quality for sure. It was a top quality effort, <laughs> and it was pretty comprehensive attempt. Yes, it was. It was. And welcome back to the Ask the Expert portion of the podcast today. I am fortunate to be joined by David Harlow. David is the founder and um, I guess president, if you will, of the Harlow Group. Uh, He is a healthcare lawyer, consultant, blogger, podcaster extraordinaire, and 
and uh, fortunate to, to have you today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Reed. I'm glad to be here. You've been doing this for, for quite some time. Maybe for those that are not familiar with you, uh, and maybe somewhat new to this space, because most of the folks that listen to the podcast come from the from the hospital marketing side of the equation. Maybe give them a little bit of flavor of your background. I've been involved in healthcare virtually my entire career, so going on thirty plus years now of practicing as a healthcare lawyer and consultant. And as healthcare has gone online, so have I. I think of myself as a serial specialist, if you will. And these days, maybe for the past 10 years or so, my specialty has really been squarely in the arena of privacy and security around sort of online tools for healthcare, whether they be clinical tools, data analytics tools, or marketing and community building tools. Um, They all touch on some of the same issues from a regulatory perspective. And earlier in my career, I was served in government as well. So I have a have a real interest in sort of public health and policy and how that interfaces with health law and the things that we try to do to make healthcare better. You know, what's different from when you, you were doing this 15 years ago, let's say, and now? I mean, obviously, there wasn't Facebook, there wasn't Twitter. Uh, the internet's not what it is now. You know, consumerism is not what it is now. You know, what are some of those trends that you're starting to see emerge that maybe you're starting to bump up against uh, what we would historically think of as health law? There has been this, what, what I might call this great digital awakening, but there has always been a stream of healthcare consumerism. And I think the value of the online communities and communications and networks and platforms that are available now to patients, to healthcare consumers, is that this enables people to communicate with each other in a way that they never were able to before. So there were pockets of interest, there were pockets of activism around patient issues. It might have been really strongly focused on a particular community, a particular disease, particular condition. Today, it's just sort of exploded as a result of this digital awakening. And that's and that's a positive thing, right? I mean, you know, we want people to connect and find value and things like that. When we look at this happening, you know, predominantly hospitals are dealing with a couple of different laws from a marketing perspective. One, obviously, the big one is is privacy and privacy concerns or PHI HIPAA related issues, uh, and then the other one when dealing with physicians is is Stark Law. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that as you look at what hospitals specifically and hospital marketing folks are specifically dealing with? I don't think that what's happening in the real world is sort of outpacing what's covered by the laws that are on the books. HIPAA is, has been on the books for a while. It's been updated somewhere, you know, a number of years ago, but it's basically the same as it, as it has always been. And many people are constantly calling for a general update or rewrite of HIPAA. And while I think that there may be things that could change about the way we deal with data privacy and security generally, as far as HIPAA goes, I think it's done a pretty good job. It has aged well. And one of the reasons that is, is the fact that it's constructed as a series of standards 
So we think of HIPAA as being very prescriptive, but it is prescriptive in a general way, if that makes sense. And the way these prescriptions are implemented can vary wildly depending on who it needs to implement them. Obviously, there's a difference, not necessarily a difference in kind in the way this is approached, but definitely a difference in degree in the way this would be approached by a three-person physician practice versus a community hospital versus an academic medical center versus Amazon that is housing the back end of cloud resources for hundreds, if not thousands, of healthcare provider organizations. The same rules apply to all of them. The point is, is that they apply in different ways. Are there areas where technology has, has caused us to go, okay, well, how does this work in this instance relative to privacy? There's a lot of consumerism. There's a lot of patient advocacy. There's a lot of patient rights advocates around the issue of privacy and data privacy. And one significant issue that people would raise is that under HIPAA, it is entirely permissible to have the healthcare providers and their contractors take patient data, de-identify it, put it to what we call secondary use, and use that in research. And sometimes that research results in things that can be commercialized. And patient advocates would say, well, if that's being commercialized and that's you're, you're getting something of value ultimately out of my data, though it's aggregated with data of thousands or millions of other patients, then send me a check. I, I, I deserve a royalty on that. It's my data. You couldn't have done it without me, right? And to a certain extent, that's 100% correct. On the other hand, there's the question of, well, you know, is it going to cost more than the value of the Starbucks gift card that I'm going to send you to actually figure out how much I owe you and where to send it? As the value of some of this data changes and grows over time, that becomes less of an issue. Uh, this is one of those things that people say blockchain is the solution. We'll be able to use blockchain in order to track these values, track the recipients of the payments that are owed when we're taking and aggregating patient information in order to do real fundamental medical research that, that yields commercial products and services. The question is, how much of the value is in the raw data itself and how much of the value is in the mashing it together, figuring out what it means and using that to develop something that's usable in the marketplace? And I guess it depends on who you ask. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> There's at least two of you. <laughs> exactly. What's your thoughts around Stark, where that stands today in, in relation to you know what we're doing and what we're trying to accomplish in, in hospital marketing, patient acquisition, things like that? The issue here is that uh, you, you don't want to necessarily be handing something of value to a physician who's in a position to refer a patient to you as a hospital. So the question is, is that a rule that makes sense in this day and age? where we're, the, you know, the, the watchword of the age is value-based purchasing or ACOs. This issue was faced when hospitals were and physicians were being incentivized to use electronic health records. 
And for many physicians, the cost of acquisition of the electronic health record system was a, was a significant barrier. And there were specific rules put in place that sort of exceptions, if you will, to the Stark rules that allowed a hospital to provide some funding for electronic health records for physicians. But that was a very specific time-limited exception. And the argument now would be that the whole set of Stark rules is based on an earlier age where everything was fee-for-service. Today, we're not all about fee-for-service. Value-based purchasing is here to stay. And because of that, physicians and hospitals need to work together in ways that we really couldn't have contemplated when we were in a full fee-for-service mindset. And even Congressman Pete Stark of the Stark Law has said, doesn't make sense today anymore, just because the market is so different. Practically, what would that look like? In the context of an accountable care organization, or in the broader context of value-based care, value-based purchasing generally, there's pools of money that end up being shared among hospitals and physicians. So you could have a situation where, from a healthcare business perspective, it makes perfect sense for a hospital to be paying some money to a physician because the physician did a really good job in limiting a hospital admission or avoiding a readmission. And if there had been a readmission, then the hospital would have to bite the bullet and not get another dime from the health insurance company. By avoiding that cost, the hospital is earning another little bit of money And in a rational business world, the hospital should thank the physician for helping with that because the admission is is not something the hospital does. The admission is something the physician does. So a payment for improving that quality of care and lowering that cost of care would appropriately be going from the hospital to the physician. That's a problem under the Stark Law. That's backwards from what most people probably think of. Most people probably think of, well, this keeps you from handing patients to doctors that refer to your facility the most. You know, like these real kind of black and white simplistic ideas uh, that were marketing uh, driven. Right. Well, that's uh, when the when the law was written. That's that's what it was designed to address. But the world has changed, and the law hasn't. And so that's really interesting. I've never thought about that in, in the way that the monetization happens, or this you know, value based purchasing in the ACO world around. There's you know money to to not admit. And so, what does that actually mean for Stark? I've never really thought of that. When you're looking at these two things, especially from a marketing perspective, kind of what are what are some of your basic just couple of bullet points for the hospital marketing director out there that wants to understand? Okay, what does this mean to me? How do I stay up to date on it? Who you know? What what do I what do I do with this information now, or what do I need to start thinking about or considering? As you say, the challenge is to keep up to date with these issues because it's a it's a shifting landscape, and there are shifting enforcement priorities at the federal level and at the state level as well. Um, this is something that people need to think about in terms of state attorneys general who run for reelection. And this is something you need to think about in terms of appointed officials in Washington with changing administrations from time to time. So there are a lot of things to be looking at at sort of macro political levels, as well as sort of pure healthcare market 
issues and sort of what makes sense in the healthcare world. These things take on a life of their own in the political world. You need to keep one eye on that, certainly, but also you need to keep one eye on the current enforcement practices of whether it's your local law enforcement or, or uh, federal law enforcement, the Department of Justice has publications on what it is that they're looking at to enforce. They have policies and guidelines on uh, interpretation of the law. So we have statutes, we have regulations, we have these guidance documents and memoranda that are written by the Department of Justice or by state agencies uh, or by healthcare agencies like CMS, which focuses on Medicare and Medicaid. And um, then there's the sort of state enforcement that may deal with private insurance as well as Medicaid. There's a lot of balls in the air and there's a lot to keep track of. And the problem is, the danger is, that if you slip, a lot of these enforcement agencies are right there to fine you <laughs> or prosecute you. <laughs> and they want to make an example out of you. And some of them are so sweet and they say, well, you know, we're not in the business of making life difficult for you. We just want to educate the regulated community. And so we're going to make an example out of you. And this just happened recently with MD Anderson, for example. Here we're talking about HIPAA violation. This is in the context of somebody losing or having a laptop stolen, right? That's something that has, we all hear about all the time. This happens all the time. All kinds of people within a healthcare entity could be taking a laptop off campus with them to do their job, whether it's for uh, clinical purposes, research purposes, or marketing purposes. There's a lot of information that we use in the course of a marketing campaign that would be considered PHI. Now we can use it for marketing if we have opt-in from patients to be marketed to from an institution that they already are, um, where they are already a patient. And we do that all the time. But at the same time, we, we have in our possession a tremendous amount of information, protected health information. And if that laptop goes for a walk, that's a real problem. That's a HIPAA breach. MD Anderson was fined $4.3 million for a breach involving just 30,000 patient records. Now, it sounds like a lot, but in the scheme of things, as you can imagine, it really isn't. Sometimes these laptop, these lost laptop cases involve one and a half million patients records that are on the laptop hard drive and it wasn't encrypted and it was off campus and somebody stole it and that leads to an enormous fine. The lesson here is that there are a lot of compliance steps that need to be taken and a lot of careful steps that need to be taken in protecting data. It can be used for a whole variety of purposes as long as it's used within the bounds of the law and as long as the data itself is protected folks in marketing, you know, always encourage them to go become, you know, really close friends with legal compliance, uh, you know, all these different groups that they're, you know, it's their job to keep up with a lot of this stuff. ITNS, I'm sure you've got security officers and different things like that at the organization. 
and just making sure that, you know, we're putting some safeguards in place, that we're, you know, participating in a way that's beneficial for the organization and that you educate yourself on a regular basis. Because I think the idea that uh, we're going to play dumb at some point doesn't necessarily hold up. No, no, not at all. And the, the real challenge is to address the culture within an institution. Some institutions have done this successfully and others less so or not yet. For some, in some institutions, the culture of someone in marketing or business development or communications is to avoid talking to legal and compliance because those are the people who just say no. You don't ask them, they can't say no. And that's not healthy. At the same time, it's not healthy for the legal and compliance departments to be perceived as such. And they need to do the work that's necessary to, uh, to go out in, the, in their client communities, so to speak, to explain what it is that they're doing, why they're worried about this stuff, and how they can help the functional departments to do their jobs better as opposed to just being in a position of saying no to stuff. For people that might want to connect with you uh, online, ask additional questions, maybe consult with you, things like that, what's the best way for people to track you down? Sure. It's easy to find me online. My Twitter handle is healthblog, B-L-A-W-G, and that is the URL of my blog as well, healthblog.com. And I can also be found at harlowgroup.net. I also have a podcast myself, and you can find me at Harlow on Healthcare. We'll make sure we include all that in the show notes. Uh, great resource. I don't know many people, maybe not any people, that uh, at least I've seen around this space for as long as David. And so uh, he's a great resource, um, whether it's a one-time or, or an ongoing engagement. I encourage you to reach out to him. And... Um, you know, don't be shy. Connect with him online. Uh, he's a great guy. Appreciate the insights. Look forward to maybe having you back on in the future and appreciate you doing this today. Thank you, Reed. My pleasure. All right. Coasting in to a finish on episode number 82 is Hospital Marketing Legal. Thanks for listening. Uh, it's been great. It's been a great episode. Before we get to recommendations, a quick reminder of where you can find us this fall, live and in person, so to speak. I mean, I guess you can find us a number of places, but at conferences. Uh, first one, October 15th through 17th is the Atlas Conference in beautiful Boston. And uh, that's brought to you by Kairos. If you are a uh, hospital-employed uh, individual, uh, use the uh, code TOUCHPOINT50 to get half off your registration. Uh, it's TOUCHPOINT50. And so we'll be there for that. you got to go to atlasconference.com to do that. Um, and just make sure along the way, hit the promotion code and type in TOUCHPOINT50 to get 50% off. The next one that we're going to be at, or the next conference that we're going to be attending, is the following month. And that's going to be in Scottsdale, Arizona. The Healthcare Internet Conference. Mm. It's the annual conference of thousands of people get together and talk about the active trends that are happening in internet, digital, etc. It sounds like the perfect conference for us. 
And that's, that's right. why we're going to be there, right, Reed? That's right. It's a uh, it's a longtime favorite. Uh, and then finally, that very next week, we will be in Jacksonville, Florida, for the Mayo Clinic Social Media Network's annual conference uh, on November 14 and 15. There's also a uh, residency taking place the day before that on the 13th, if you're interested. But anyway, you can find out more about all of those and what that all means at socialmedia.mayoclinic.org. But that one is very specific to social media. So you'll you'll hear from folks there. Uh, I'm pretty excited about Susanna Fox being there. And uh, I've always mm-hmm. always liked the research she's done, even back in her days at Pew. So I think that'd be really cool. Uh, excited to see her. So um, we'll be there, hopefully get some good uh, uh, some good interviews at all of those conferences. But I uh, would encourage right. you to, to come to any of them that you uh, might have an interest in. That's right. And if you're there and you want to be interviewed, let us know. We'd be more than happy to invite you into a panel yeah. recording like we usually do or, you know, just pull you aside and get your thoughts on a particular topic. Or All right. Before we get out of here, uh, recommendations for today. Reed, I am going to recommend, um, as you know, I've been slowly building my smart home. Oh, smart home. Oh, this is smartphone. I was like, eh, I'm not sure that's <laughs> no. a good market to get into, but okay. <laughs> no, smart home. I've been building yes. elements in my Got smart it. home. Got it. And uh, in the last month or so, I picked up one of the rings. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah one of those front door rings. Mm-hmm. The ring is, is actually a really great addition to my smart home. It replaces my doorbell. has a camera attached to it. Actually, I purchased it during the Amazon Prime times, so mm. I got it actually at a pretty good discount. They were for sale. Just it's easy to mount on your on the outside of your your door. You connect it and charge it up with a USB port. So whenever it, the battery gets low, it sends me a notification. It has an app, and anytime someone comes to the door uh, and rings it. Uh, it records them and you can actually talk to them through your phone if you wanted to and see if, you know, like if someone's going to be delivering something or let's say you're upstairs, the doorbell rings and you just want to check to see is at the front door, what have you. It's yep. really kind of handy. It also has a motion sensor built into it. So you can use it as a security device. And so I get little notifications that says there was motion detected at your front door. And you can extend the ring network, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So you can actually start to get additional security cameras put them around your house and before you know it there you go you have a built-in security system very cool that's a great recommendation uh, uh, i think that's a great product and, and a lot of the smart home stuff is is really pretty fascinating so um very cool very cool i'm going to recommend a netflix uh show docu-series. I don't know what they call this thing. Anyway, I don't know how you classify it, but it's not a terribly new one, but um, it used to be uh, just kind of online, so to speak, and now it's on Netflix, but it's comedians in cars getting coffee. And so that's the Jerry Seinfeld show where he goes and picks up another comedian driving a car and they go and have coffee. It's pretty self-explanatory. It's really neat. It's really well done. The production value is really great. Uh, I'm a car guy. I love cars. And so that part of it's really neat because he, he drives something that's really interesting and tries to match up the car to the celebrity or the comedian. And uh, anyway, a new series came out not too terribly long ago. There's maybe 10 episodes or something like that. But there's some really, really funny ones through the years. And uh, there's some really great uh, conversations he has with some folks. The David Letterman one was really good, I thought. 
recommend you checking it out. And the episodes are relatively short, like 20 minutes or something like that. They're really fun. And uh, the, the most recent season was really good. It ended with uh, him taking uh, Jerry Lewis out. Yes. Shortly before he passed away. And I thought that was really good and poignant. So I love that show. It's This is one of the first times you recommend something that I actually am very familiar with. So um, I love that show too. There you go. Awesome. Well, thanks for listening. If you have not, please sign up for the Insider. You can do that over at touchpoint.health. That's a weekly email of a lot of great curated content along with uh, quick links to any new episodes of the Touchpoint Health Network, uh, Touchpoint Media Network shows that have come out over the last week. And so I would love for you to do that. Great way to stay in the know of of when anything new is coming out or what we may be coming up. So for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.